When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Alan, are you, you strike me as a gamer potentially or a gamer aspirant. I played so many video games as a 12-year-old. And then I discovered girls and, and that kind of crowded out video <laughs> games for a while. I discovered girls and then my shame drove me to play more video games for like four or five years. <laughs> I, finally, I finally broke free. <laughs> I think I'm a deep gamer at heart, which is why I play zero video games. Because I just know that were I to go down the path. But I'm, I'm going to say I'm, I'm very much a, I don't like, I'm not a real-time gamer. That stresses me out. I'm a turn-based person. Oh, interesting. I, I have absolutely no idea what that means. I, I tend to think, I think all, particularly, this is me being a gender stereotypical, but I think all men of a certain age in our generation are video game aspirants because we're kind of like socialized to appreciate video games. I think probably many women are, but it's like less socially acceptable to own up to it. But I feel like if you put on a video game and like any group of men in particular ages like 20 to 50, they're going to end up just watching it in silence and appreciating it. I don't know, man. This this is a little bit like, oh, a girl who likes Monty Python. Everybody likes Monty Python. Everybody plays video games. Wait, was I Monty Python? I was Monty Python coded as a guy thing. I I loved Monty Python as a kid. It was I, not. It was not coded as male, but there was a thing where like guys who liked Monty Python would be surprised if a girl enjoyed Monty Python. Also, I think what is definitely coded as male is not necessarily liking Monty Python. But like in the middle of an otherwise normal social interaction, finding someone else who likes Monty Python and then spending the next 15 minutes enacting Monty Python skits while everyone else slowly backs away. That's because to survive, <laughs> women need to develop social skills. That's what that's the video game thing, too. I think it's the same idea. It's like you would never just sit and watch somebody else play a video game for three hours. But I think, uh, you know, men of our generation, that's what we did, especially if you're a younger sibling. You just sat and watched your older sibling play video games. And you're also you're better at rotating shapes in your minds, and you're better so, at math. I will say, I will say, first of all, no one's no one's going near that, Quentin. Nice try. Um, I, I will say to Scott's point, actually, there is a very interesting and I think quite charming subculture of video game girlfriends, girlfriends of gamers who like legitimately seem to enjoy just like hanging out next to their boyfriend as he plays video games. My wife won't let me play video games. It's like her one her one sharp line is like no video games in the house. I don't know what's going to happen when my Wait, son why? becomes of an age where he's interested. I think she doesn't appreciate them and doesn't want to be forced to engage with them. <laughs> and so it's not a, it's not on the agenda item. But how will, how okay. will your son develop his spatial rotation skills? <laughs> I'm going to chuck a football at his head. <laughs> A hundred times a day, like my dad did to me. It's going to be a word cell instead of a shape rotator. (laughs) Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. I'm here with my two other co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are thrilled to have you back again for what we are calling the Raising a Word Cell Edition. A title that I will admit, I don't 100% get, but it was impressed upon me by my co-hosts. We're welcome to explain it in Twitter later at some point. Look, Twitter is dying. We need we need to really work on the memes. We need to just drive them home as much as we can. This is us preserving the cultural heritage of Twitter by embodying other social media. That's perfect. It's, yeah, That's it's, it's like that Norwegian uh, seed bank, but for worthless memes. <laughs> Svardbark, I think, or, or whatever it's called. <laughs> oh, why don't we call this the Svardbark Word Bank Edition? I like that much better. <laughs> much better. Okay, well, we'll save that for next week, perhaps. Um, because for this week, we are excited to have you all here with us as we walk through some of the surprisingly huge stories that have broken over the past week in the national security and adjacent areas arenas. Topic one for this week, 
Red Dead Redemption. A little nod to our gamer listeners out there. Expectations of a red wave in the 2022 midterm elections came up short this week as Democrats retained control of the Senate and expanded their control in the states, while Republicans appear set to gain control of the House by the slimmest of margins, although it hasn't happened yet, at least at the time of recording. How will these election results impact the security of our democracy moving forward? Topic two, negotiating a peace and treaty. Even as Russian forces beat a retreat from Kherson, some officials within the Biden administration, most notably Joint Chief of Staff Mark Milley, are reportedly becoming more inclined to push for a negotiated peace, particularly as the winter months slow down the pace of fighting. Russia, meanwhile, appears to have responded to a speech by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky outlining a 10-step plan for peace with a new barrage of missile attacks, including a few that landed on Polish soil. What are the pros and cons of negotiations, and how might they impact the conflict and its attendant risks of escalation? And topic three, he said, she said. President Biden sat down with Chinese President Xi Jinping this past week for their first face-to-face meeting as presidents on the margins of the G20 meeting. Both sides reportedly committed to easing tensions between the two countries and resuming work towards shared challenges such as climate change. What explains this change in tack? Will it stick? Well, for our first topic, to get us started, I'm going to hand it over to me, Scott, uh, to talk a little bit about this last week in election results. <laughs> you all. <laughs> meeting Lily. Scott's going to do the rest of the show in the third person. <laughs> Just the delight, the kind of like Mario Brothers, it's a me, yes, Scott, talking about that was just adorable. It was, you know, it's, it's just like it was. It's the it was the it was the tone of voice that my 19 month old son makes when he successfully like steps across a curb. He just like looks at looks at looks at us and goes. <laughs> <laughs> That's about how I feel. Like. That's right. Look, guys, this isn't an tra- easy transition to pull off. Handing it off to yourself to start a new topic. So I'm trying to buck myself up a little bit. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Well, as I'm sure all the listeners are well aware, we had an election last week, and the results we've seen trickle in over the past week or so are not what lots of people expected going in. Reports and anticipation of what many were calling a red wave or a red tsunami bolstered by conservative commentators, lots of Republican-funded polling operations, and the projections of a lot of more credible projections like 538 uh, and others all suggested that the outcome was most likely to be a fairly Republican-leading victory both in the states and in Congress. But instead, we've seen pretty much the opposite. We've seen Democrats keep control of the Senate, perhaps even may even gain a seat in the Senate, depending on the outcome of a runoff in Georgia in December. We have seen Democrats make gains in most states and most areas at the state level with a couple of exceptions including in key offices relevant to management of the 2024 election, so key gubernatorial offices, key secretary of state offices around the country. And then we have also seen the House shift probably to Republican control. Again, we're not quite the point where they've called it yet. Uh, I think they were at 217 seats of the 218 needed to gain control, but essentially controlling the House by the absolutely slimmest of margins, one of the slimmest margins of control that we've seen in a Congress in some time, most likely. So, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get started. I know Alan and I uh, had an opportunity to talk about this a little bit uh, last week as a guest on another podcast, and you and I got to talk about the Lawfare podcast. So now we get to bring all three of us together to hash through some of this. But now that you've had a few more days to reflect from the last conversation we had about this on the Lawfare podcast last week, what should we be making of these results and the sort of trajectory they put us on in terms of democracy? protection, election protection, and security moving forward, particularly as we look forward to 2024, where we are particularly concerned that there might be you know, more shenanigans of the sort we saw in 2020. Yeah, so a few thoughts. First off, I will say I am definitely surprised at, at these results. I was I thought that there was a, a chance that Democrats might hold the Senate, but I was surprised by the sheer strength of the vote for Democrats really across the board with with some exceptions. Um, I think it's it's worth just underlining how astonishing this is in the the grand scheme of midterm elections. The president's party usually does quite poorly, and this is only one of only a handful of elections in in which uh, the president's party really held its ground. 
not entirely see the House, but um, in the Senate and across uh, across the states and in state houses and in gubernatorial seats. That is really worth uh, dwelling on for a moment. I think the the most immediate takeaway is that I'm substantially more sanguine about the integrity of the 2024 election than I was before the vote. As as you mentioned, Scott, um, candidates across the country who were election deniers were pretty roundly rejected, not entirely. There are some red states uh, where they won in key election administration offices and secretary of state positions. But by and large, election deniers running on the Republican ticket for secretary of state and gubernatorial positions, which hold authority uh to certify the the popular vote and the electoral vote in the states uh, lost. And as of last night, so that's Monday night, Carrie Lake in Arizona is the last one to be down. Um, And I think that is really, really important because it, it means that it will be substantially more difficult for Trump or any other Republican sort of trying shenanigans in 2024 to upend the 2024 presidential vote. That is key. There are a lot of other takeaways, but I'll just say my other top line is that, you know, I think there was a, a sense after the 2016 election among the sort of elite commentariat of, of which I guess I am a member that, you know, Trump was speaking for some silent majority of Americans, that he was, you know, giving voice to the the barbaric op of the American people. And I think now, you know, we've had three elections in a row. So 2018 midterms, 2020 presidential general election, and now 2022 midterms, where Trump and Trumpism have been rejected, not, you know, across the board, but pretty resoundingly. And what that tells me is that, you know, there is not a hidden majority of voters who support Trumpism and authoritarianism in America, that there can be a coalition of people who come out to vote against that for a variety of reasons that are entangled within one another. I think we really can't set aside Dobbs as a factor here, but that is important to hold on to. And I think it should it should really matter in terms of how we understand the election, how we understand the strength of democracy going forward and, and where the Republican Party stands as well. I think those are all excellent points. The one thing I do want to push back on, and it's not so much in what you were saying, Quinta, but it is in what I think is an emerging narrative that Trump is in many ways a or the big loser in last week's election because you know many of his candidates were defeated. His most likely contestant uh, in the 2024 Republican presidential uh, race, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, won by really remarkably big numbers. You know, query what that says about. Maybe Florida is just a red state or, you know, maybe DeSantis just is really quite popular there. Um, and we should also know, you know, we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon and four or five hours from now, Trump is going to give a big speech at Mar-a-Lago and all the reports are that he's going to announce his candidacy for 2024, something that we will inevitably talk about uh, for many episodes going going forward, though we're not going to talk about it uh, uh, directly on today's episode. I do think, however, it is a little bit too hasty to say that this shows that Trump is weak relative to some other vision or some other plausible vision of the Republican Party. Um, You know, I think that what may be going through Trump's mind, and I try to spend as little time as possible in Trump's head, um, what may be going through his mind, it's not surprising given his narcissism, is that he's going to view this election actually in the exact opposite way that everyone else is. He's going to say, look, I'm not, when, when I'm not on the ticket, no one else has the juice. No one else has the magic touch that I do. And again, he's a narcissist. Of course, he'd think that. But I think that's maybe less crazy than I think a lot of people are saying. It is quite possible that the Republicans have unfortunately kind of gotten themselves into this weird cul-de-sac where they can't really win with Trump because everyone dislikes him so much. But they kind of can't win without Trump because for a lot of reasons, both Trumpy and frankly not Trumpy, they've alienated so many of their standard, reliable, kind of you know well-educated upper middle class voters that now they need a charismatic populist figure like Trump to bring out the new base. And it's not at all clear whether or not DeSantis can do it. I mean, maybe he can. It's possible, you know. 
I don't find them particularly charismatic, but some people seem to. But it may just be that the Republicans are now kind of in between this very unpleasant rock and a hard place. Now, again, given their frank failure to support small D democracy over the last several years, I don't feel that bad for them. But I do think that we should be careful about sort of reading too much into uh, last week's results regarding Trump's success itself or or Trump's um, uh, potential going forward. Yeah, kind of a, a meta note here. There was an interesting piece in uh, the American Conservative by none other than J.D. Vance, newly elected senator from Ohio and number one Trump fanboy after trashing him for many years, uh, who who made the point that basically, you know, this doesn't necessarily, we, we shouldn't blame this on Trump. I think that's actually the title of the article. And he argues maybe part of the problem is that the Trump coalition, the people who are really fired up about him, don't vote in midterms. And so in the midterm, you kind of have the worst of both worlds because people who do vote in midterms are turned off by the Trumpiness and the really hardcore Trump people who could put you over the top just aren't there. I don't know if that's right, um, but I think it, it matters insofar as the Republican Party is going to be kind of fighting over what direction to go. And if this is the direction that the Trump faction, this is the story that they're telling themselves, um, they may have an incentive to keep going in the Trump direction for 2024. So I have to say, I, I am not persuaded by this line of reasoning um, you guys have put forward uh, and, and disagree with it pretty solidly. Um, look, these results are just categorically bad for former President Trump. I don't see how you can have somebody go in, specifically designate campaigns for choice against the grain of other major party figures, actively campaign for those candidates against other major party figures, including his, former, his own former vice president, Senate majority leader, and then have those candidates not just... Republicans lose across the board, but those candidates underperform more than other candidates and not see that as a bad sign and a major weakness for former President Trump. Now, does that mean that all of a sudden the people who support him are going to concede that and not you know, try and develop some substantially self-serving narratives as to why this isn't a sign that defeat is inevitable in 2024? No. And I don't think defeat is inevitable in 2024, but that's you know the straw man they're going to set up to argue against saying, well, don't count Trump out. I think Nate Silver says, I saw this on Twitter earlier and I, I agree with it wholeheartedly. He said, that's like a kind of a weak take because nobody's really arguing that, you know, counting Trump out at this stage. At, but at this point, this is just about as bad an outcome as Donald Trump could have asked for. Uh, the fact that he's moving forward with an announcement anyway, you can see it as maybe a sign of kind of delusional self-confidence. He's also got a lot of legal factors and other factors why he seems to be convinced and some people think declaring might be useful for him. You know, And he, of course, announced that he was going to make this big announcement before the election results, before he understood this sort of result. And so it seems like you know he might feel pretty penned in at this point. I just don't think those sorts of measures are really the sort of thing we should look for in terms of how Trump's own supporters, his most diehard supporters, shape their narrative about what happened. What's important is how other Republicans and other people who vote Republican view this narrative. And I don't think we know that yet, but we are already seeing plenty of threads of other counter narratives, both in the mainstream media and among Republicans, beginning to come out. And the incentives for those narratives that frame Trump as a major defeating factor as a as a as as a big detriment to him, I think are really strong because you're gonna see, you know, house control hang on a couple of pickups in New York State that in two years are going to have to run in mostly blue districts. And so are they going to have an incentive to be extremely Trumpy? I doubt that. In fact, I think their electoral and political incentive is going to be we need to find ways to win in blue Biden leaning districts. And that means probably playing hard to the center. So long story short, I think the incentives are there actually to create a lot of space within the Republican Party for a counter-Trump sort of movement. I don't think we know what that looks like yet, but those things always take time to shape. And so the fact that we don't see another contrary vision doesn't mean the Trump vision hasn't been substantially weakened. I really think it has. Yeah, no, my my, my only point is not to say that this was a good night for Trump. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that, and I, I think we all agree on this, it's just, it's a little too early for for declaring him sort of politically dead. Yeah, I think I think a key factor honestly is the frankly the cowardice of Republican party elites once again. It, it's pretty astonishing. I mean, you see these there there is this real opportunity to kind of 
coalesce around DeSantis, whom I also frankly find deeply unappealing and I think is a threat to democracy for other reasons, uh, coalesce around anyone else, move the party in a more moderate, less Trumpy direction. And yet what you see in the reporting is basically, you know, reporting about how Republican leadership are basically planning to like not say anything in the Trump versus DeSantis fight on the theory that, you know, oh, let Trump get it out of his system. He'll burn himself out. No one's going to support the crazy stuff that he's doing. There is a, a tweet this morning uh, from a NBC News reporter saying uh, Senator John Cornyn says he doesn't expect Trump to be the GOP nominee for 2024. <laughs> but if he is, Cornyn says he'll support him. I mean, we have been down this road so many times. It, it This is Groundhog Day. It is unbelievable to me that these people do not understand this is not going to work. The, the flashbacks, the flashbacks to... Yes, Trump is an autocratic lunatic who sent a mob to kill me and my fellow Republican colleagues in the Capitol. But of course, I'd, of course, I'm going to vote for him again. I mean, obviously, it's it is um, it's a sight to behold. But I honestly think like this is a like a lot of it's built in the nature of our party system. Like you know, particularly members of the House sway strongly with the political winds, really of both parties, particularly of the Republican Party these days. I would say, but honestly, like I also think. A big part of this is the reason why we might well see this really be a critical turning point against the kind of Trump faction, the Republican Party, because right now you have affirmative evidence that he's lost and you're not going to have another data point that suggests that somehow his support or his approach is a winning supporter approach before 2024. Everybody's going to have to make a decision before they get there. And I really think, you know, having this being your last salvo before 2024 is a real anchor around the ankle of the former president in trying to persuade people, hey, keep me as the leader of your party when you have other people inevitably step up to try and fill that void. So before we finish this topic, I do want to talk about what this means for just the day-to-day functioning of the House of Representatives, because I actually think that that's important, not just because it's important, but it's important from the sense of kind of the democracy angle that we at Lawfare tend to care about. So as Scott mentioned, it looks like the Republicans will take the House. I mean, I'm on the New York Times front page. They still haven't officially called it, which again is crazy This now that we're a week out. But let's say, as is likely to be the case, that the Republicans have like a three or four, maybe even five, you know, representative majority. You know, first, it's not clear that Kevin McCarthy will actually be the Speaker of the House. Um, he He might be, but he just ha- he just took a, a leadership vote in his conference earlier today, and you know thirty five people defected, and we'll see what they do um, because of course Kevin McCarthy needs a majority of the House to become speaker, not a majority just of the GOP, and presumably no Democrats are going to vote for him. And so the way he's probably going to deal with that is by offering crazy concessions to the far right side of his party, either policy concessions or what might actually be even worse, procedural concessions, which is to say making his speakership sort of uniquely weak um, in previous American speakerships. Now, if you care about policy and passing legislation, that's bad. Though, of course, in divided government, no one's going to pass legislation anyway. So maybe that doesn't matter. But there are some things that do have to happen to keep the government going, right? Um, And I think just the debt ceiling is an interesting example of the first thing we're going to run into, one of the first things we're going to run into. You know, you're going to have far right members of the House GOP caucus using that as basically hostage. Donald Trump is going to, because he's a chaos Muppet, going to be pressuring the Republicans not to raise the debt ceiling. Biden, you know, based on the political reality and also having lived through this during the Obama administration, is going to recognize that he cannot negotiate with terrorists um, on the fiscal health of the United States. And so, you know, what my guess will be is that the president will, whether it's uh, through some technically legal strategy like mint the trillion dollar platinum coin gambit yes. that was going around. Back to the coin. I miss the coin. <laughs> Back to the coin. Or just say, screw it, right? Like, you know, Lincoln needed to do some weird stuff. I need to do some weird stuff because we just cannot have, we just cannot have, you know, the, one of the major political parties uh, hold America's solvency hostage. And that itself is bad for democracy, right? And, and I, I mean, again, it's going to be fun like Quentin and I are going to spend a lot of time cackling on Slack over like Kevin McCarthy's bad day, but it's not 
so the schadenfreude is not quite so satisfying when it's your country that is being dragged into this. Um, am, am I being too much of a, a, a downer here? Well, so so two two points. One is I do think it's important that the Democrats have control of the Senate, and that's important less because of what's going to happen in the next Congress and more because of what's going to happen during the lame duck period in this Congress. The Democrats, if, since they're holding the Senate, they're not going to need to, to rush to push judges through because they have another two years. I do wonder if that means it's more likely that they'll be able to actually uh, work on some legislation getting rid of the debt ceiling. Yes, repeal it. Don't don't raise it, exactly. guys. Don't Please raise it. God. Just repeal it. The other point is, look, I think it's important to keep in mind, like, We've had speakers navigating very tight majorities before. Nancy Pelosi has a pretty tight majority now, although not as tight, it seems, as Kevin McCarthy will likely have. But the difference is that Nancy Pelosi is good at her job. Uh, Kevin McCarthy is not, I think, widely considered to be a particularly strong leader. And he's, you know, he's he's attempting to herd cats. So it's not just having a really narrow majority. It's having a really narrow majority in a, a conference that is all over the place ideologically, where a lot of the members just want to burn things down, and where Kevin McCarthy, assuming he's going to be driving the bus, doesn't actually really have control of the vehicle. And that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, Quinta, he's not hurting cats. He is hurting underslept, underfed, feral pigs. Like, just to be clear, like what we're dealing with here with some of his conference. So I want to push back on this. Uh, I don't fundamentally disagree with the concern of a Republican-run Congress, right? But somehow we seem to have talked ourselves into a position where the slimmer the Republican majority, the more right-wing the Republican Party has an incentive to act. And I don't think that's right. You know, right now we saw 30-odd defectors from the internal House caucus vote for Speaker, right? So Kevin needs to get to, what, like 218, a majority of the House to be Speaker. He, uh, you know, now is about a little more, less than 30 shy of that. And so where does he get those votes? Yeah, he can. He is inevitably going to try and go to the further right wing of the, of the conference, right? The problem is that caucus, A, a lot of them are like not super strategic actors. They're people who disagree and do lots of self-destructive things. So persuading them actually isn't necessarily that easier. And that contingent is probably smaller, and I think substantially less smaller and more isolated now than it was before these election results. Because a lot of people who would have been part of that caucus are the people who lost. And the people who might be willing to join that sort of caucus but follow political wins don't see the political wins blowing in that direction. So I actually think, again, this is in the realm of outcomes that were quite plausible, like a better outcome than a lot of the ones we were anticipating before the election. And particularly the closer this house is, the more scenarios are going to come up where you know McCarthy has an equal chance to lean towards try and get Democratic cooperation as Republican cooperation. And then the question becomes, well, how much can the Democrats actually like facilitate or make that happen? And I think there are ways they could. I think kind of the partisan nature of politics on both sides like makes that really hard right now from a kind of political rewards perspective. But I could see strategic behavior on Democrat side trying to find ways to do it. I don't know if it works quite around like the leadership race because that's that's just such a like longer commitment and it becomes a very unstable like support base for McCarthy if he leans too hard on Democrats. But I also think it provides lots more opportunities for influence in what is admittedly a very majoritarian-led House. But Netta, you know, it's going to be very chaotic, but I don't have any reason to think it's any more chaotic than would be a stronger Republican majority. And so I still think this is probably moving in a direction of seeing more voices for saying governance, having more opportunities for voice and more incentives to be heard. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So from a civil war within the Republican Party to an actual war between Russia and Ukraine, I think that was decent. So, dear listeners, we were going to talk about some reporting about comments made by Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Mark Milley, uh, privately and in public, that Ukraine should seek a diplomatic solution with Russia going into the winter. Um, We still do want to talk about that and what it means for the conflict, but it's also worth noting, uh, right before we started recording, there were reports of a Russian missile that crossed into uh, Poland right by the border with Ukraine and reportedly, although this has not yet been confirmed, killed two Polish civilians. Uh, Poland is a NATO member. This does not mean Article 5 nuclear war. And right as we're recording this, there's uh, reporting uh, from Lara Seligman, who covers the Pentagon for Politico, saying, um, and I'll just read her tweet, um, National Security Council and DOD are still assessing reports of an explosion in Poland today, but a U.S. official tells me it was likely caused by a missile strike or errant missile, not remnants of a missile Ukrainian armed forces shot down. So make of that what you will. I think this sort of underlines uh what a strange and precarious situation we find ourselves in and and perhaps also makes clear why it might be that somebody like Millie thinks that there's a, a premium on reaching some kind of negotiated solution in the coming months rather than than you know letting the the war drag on but there's a, a lot to talk about here before we get to Poland Alan let me turn it over to you I'm curious for your thoughts on Millie yeah so <laughs> I think a couple of things to say. I mean, first, there's this interesting question of whether or not it is appropriate for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to be, um, I mean, freelancing might be the the technical term here uh, about his about his views. I mean, obviously, I mean, I, I think he's 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 not had any sort of secret. He's been quite public in in his views there, and and to the extent that this is in contrast with what his commander in chief wants, there's this interesting question about whether it is appropriate for him and how appropriate it is for him to express these views publicly. But putting that to aside, at the same time, I do think that there is a somewhat, I think, unhelpful tendency among at least some of those who, like I think all right-thinking people, support Ukraine, not just to object to Millie-style arguments, but to get quite angry about them and, and to view any discussion of negotiated settlements as a dishonorable betrayal of, of Ukraine. It may very well be a dishonorable betrayal of Ukraine, to be clear. Ukraine is 100% the innocent party in this. And were we to live in a just and good world, they would reclaim all the territory. They would reclaim Crimea. They would get a giant reparations bill. Uh, and uh, Vladimir Putin would be sitting in The Hague. But we do not live, unfortunately, in such a just world. And as you know, today's events in Poland have made clear accidents can happen and things can spin very easily out of control. And so it is important to have people like Millie express the very unpleasant position that the way this may have to end is with the victimized party accepting something less than full restitution. Now, I don't know if that actually is how this has to end, right? There are a lot of unknowns. It's not clear how the Ukrainian and Russians will perform in the winter. It's not clear how cold this winter will be. It's not clear because of how cold this winter will be, how strong Western Europe's support will be of Ukraine, right? There's a a big difference between a mild winter in which it's just kind of expensive to be a Western European and a bitterly world historically cold winter in which, you know, large parts of Western Europe freeze, though my understanding is that the long-term meteorological forecasts uh, suggest that that will not be the case, fortunately. So uh, again, a lot, a lot is unknown, but I, I do think that this position has to be, has to be grappled with. And although I myself personally would love, again, nothing more than to see a total and complete Ukrainian victory here, you know, life's not, life's not that simple. Yeah, I, I generally agree with that, but I'm going to put forward a 
maybe a little bit of a out there thesis for you all, which is that I don't think these Millie comments are bad for the Biden administration. I wouldn't be surprised if they were kind of made with the permission of the Biden administration, or at least with the kind of tacit concession for the simple reason that it's politically hard, both for international dynamics with the Ukrainians and leading the European coalition and for domestic reasons regarding the election and the Biden administration's strong stance on Ukraine for the Biden administration to really start ratcheting back or look like they're in any way pressuring the Ukrainians to do anything they don't want to do. And in a lot of ways for good reasons, reasons I agree with, right? But nonetheless, there is that fundamental point. I think you've articulated really well, Alan, which is that like negotiations usually are ongoing alongside of armed conflicts. Like you have avenues of communication so that sides can, even if they don't wind up the conflict, have lines of deconfliction, ways to de-escalate. There's lots of reasons why you have those avenues open. And a lot of those, it seems like have really dwindled in this conflict. A lot of it on Russian initiation as much as initiation by anyone else. But those lack of avenues of communication means there's high risk of escalation. It also means that if there is a point that's reached where parties may be willing to find ways to de-escalate, if not permanently, at least temporarily in ways that might have humanitarian benefits or other safety benefits, it, it really kind of creates an avenue by which those can be heard and you can reach some sort of common understanding. And so having somebody in the administration, preferably someone, though, who's not too politically tied to Joe Biden, and I think Mark Milley is the perfect candidate for this, voice these opinions so that the Biden folks can say, no, President Zelensky, we are 100% with you. We will never go back with you. But there are these voices in circles among professional military people and other people that people take seriously. And like, you know, they raise these points. So what can we do to address these points? And I think that's why, frankly, you see things like the speech that Volodymyr Zelensky gave to the G20 just the other day, I think in the last 24 hours or so, where he laid out a 10-point plan saying, here is our very ambitious plan for peace, which I think is actually a pretty astute and thorough covering of the genuine issues and grievances Ukraine has and presents them in the order of highest priority in some ways to the international uh, community to emphasize, hey, look, international community, here are all the barriers to real peace with Russia until we address these big issues. He starts with nuclear security, then he goes to food security, then he goes to energy security, and he puts you know accountability for war crimes actually like in the lower half of those points, even though that's something obviously very important for Ukrainians, I would I would think. Um, but he recognizes like that's not the grievances the broader part of the international community has. But in signaling that openness, like, you know, it, it both politically plays to the part of Biden and other supporters of Zelensky so that they can say to their domestic populace, look, we are pushing for peace as even as we support the Ukrainians in war. That makes it easier for them to have that selling point. And then when Vladimir Putin responds with a missile barrage, frankly, it makes it easy, even easier for the rest of the international community to rally even more strongly behind the Ukrainians. So I, Having these different voices is not always bad. And, and again, I, I'm not even sure it's, I would 100% assume that this is all happening without the um, kind of tacit, you know, acknowledgement that these things are going to happen by the Biden administration and acceptance that there may be some upside of this for them. And so, Scott, acknowledging that there's a lot that we don't know about what happened in Poland and that listeners will probably know more by the time they hear this tomorrow, um, I'm curious for your thoughts about what's happening there in an international legal context. Would you be able to just give kind of an, an overview of the the relevant factors here? Am I, am I correct that uh, a missile crossing into Polish territory does not automatically mean that NATO has to drop a nuclear bomb on Russia? You are you are correct. There's at least one Phew. step That's, between those two outcomes. That's not what Twitter yeah, says. Because Twitter <laughs> thinks otherwise. <laughs> I know. It is so the, the important thing to bear in mind here, the key kind of international legal, there's kind of two kind of international factors. There's the general international law around these things, uh, and then the NATO factor, like the fact that Poland is a NATO member, right? In terms of the NATO factor, Article 5 comes in, where people think, well, because they've attacked a NATO state, now all these other NATO actors are obligated to respond militarily. And that's, that's certainly not the case. Um, Article 5 of the NATO treaty actually doesn't really commit the United States or any other NATO member to respond to an attack against another, another NATO party. It obligates them to re respond in a way that they see as appropriate. Um, it's highly deferential in acknowledgement that like a military response is not 
always the right response. And also in acknowledgement of the fact that many countries, including the United States, have constitutional processes that prevent them from being obligated to launch into a war anytime a treaty is violated, um, at least by most most people's perspective. So, you know, the first thing you do is really you trigger high-level consultations among NATO members. That probably is almost certainly going to happen over this, um, where they're going to have a major summit and share a lot of intelligence and have a lot of discussions about it. And then if there were, you know, large, if there were the beginning of a large-scale Russian invasion of Poland, then there's a very strong argument that Poland has pre-consented to other NATO members to come to its aid so that they don't need to seek permission to all of a sudden, you know, start responding against Russia as you would under, under conventional international law, collective self-defense sort of principles. In terms of conventional international law, whether this actually is an attack that warrants a military response by Poland or by NATO more generally actually depends a lot on the facts that we don't know yet. I mean, this was an accident. Certainly, if it was something that was like a rocket shot down from the sky, as some Polish officials have said, oh, that sounds like the Pentagon's repudiating that now, then obviously that wasn't intentional Russian action. You wouldn't treat that as an armed attack. Um, even if it were an accident, like, yeah, we did rocket something. But we, it was a mistaken target or we entered the coordinates wrong. You know, And these things do happen in armed conflict. Remember, you know, the United States in, in Belgrade in the late 90s uh, you know, bombed a Russian or a Chinese uh, embassy, right? Totally inadvertently, they entered the wrong targets. Like, and we've reason to believe that's true. It's not the United States misrepresenting anything, caused a major international incident, but people moved past it. And at no point was there serious consideration that China had any sort of international right to respond militarily. Same would be true here. If this were a deliberate Russian targeting of a target on Polish soil, you have a little bit of a different view. So, you know, is that serious enough to warrant like an armed attack? There are some international folks who say you need to reach a certain threshold of severity before you can have that sort of response. And some people may contest, well, one rocket attack that killed two people, that's not the sort of severity that you would normally say, you know, you can just immediately launch a war against another party against. It's supposed to reach a pretty high level severity. But state behavior doesn't always track that line. Often many states are willing to accept a much lower threshold. And the United States has basically said like any sort of like, you know, hostile, potentially lethal action can warrant a, a proportional military response. And it's just a question of whether NATO allies will agree with that. So it really comes down to the that's those are the facts that we're going to see them inquiring as to what was the intent with Russia in this particular case. And then we have to see what Russia does next. If Russia walks back its actions and, you know, at least some tacit way apologizes, that could do a lot to de-escalate the situation. If they double down or pursue additional strikes or say, we're going to do it in the future, that's going to be way more problematic. So Scott, Scott and Quinta, I'm curious for your intuition about this question, which is, let's assume, I think it's not unreasonable to say that this is the most likely outcome, given what we know now, um, that this was a mistake, right? Mistakes just happen. And I think it's pretty clear from the last, oh God, it's like nine months now, um, that the Russian military is just not that good, which again, does not excuse anything, but does give us some priors for these sorts of mistakes. So this was just a, a, a whoopsie. Um, do we think that this strike, which does sharpen the mind, I think, because it just is a good re reminder that it's hard to keep um, wars contained in what are fundamentally arbitrary lines on maps. Is, is this sharpening of the mind, do we think that it helps the Ukrainians or does it help the Russians? Because I can see it both ways, right? You can imagine you know, this is a reminder to Western Europe that, and Central and Western Europe, right? That uh, you know, we're not we're not that far from Armageddon, so maybe we should get tell the Ukrainians to cool it, um, so we can end this war sooner rather than later, right? This might be the the Millie position. At the same time, it can be a sharpening of the minds in the sense of you know, people don't love it when their nation is struck by rockets, um, whether intentionally or accidentally, and you can imagine a kind of a feeling of greater solidarity with Ukraine. I'm, I'm curious for your totally evidence-free uh, intuitions about uh, in which direction this is going to go. Yeah, I will say I was actually about to ask Scott the same question. <laughs> so Scott, over to you. <laughs> Foreign policy guy, go. <laughs> you know, my strong suspicion is that is that this was some sort of mistake, much like your intuition, Alan. If not a mistake, an overreach, uh, a mistargeting, um, something made made a smaller level. Look, you know, if Russia was going to step past this norm, um, there are both more and less severe ways we want to do it. If they just wanted to like poke a stick a little bit, they could have dropped some rockets in areas where they weren't going to kill people, right? If they actually want to start executing military targets in Poland and surrounding countries, there are more ambitious or meaningful targets they could have pursued. So this doesn't strike me as like 
if Russia was going to take such a big step the way they would go about it. So I suspect there's a margin of error here, meaning there's going to be lots of space and mutual incentive to deescalate. NATO's going to have to put on is going to have to respond. I don't think they will be inclined to respond militarily, certainly not to outside of Ukraine. Maybe we'll see a NATO military response in Ukraine. But even that, I think, is something they would say for something pretty severe on Russia's part. I'm just not sure this passes that threshold. So I think we'll see a kind of bulking. I would guess we, we see like a pretty bulking up of defenses in Poland and its surrounding countries among NATO allies, more reinforcement of the need for NATO forces, put them on a higher alert, maybe having them more operationally ready. Things that make Russia nervous and Russia doesn't necessarily like, and, and to some extent do actually increase the risk of an inadvertent tip towards escalation because you just have more fighter jets flying next to each other. But uh, nonetheless, I don't, I don't think you really see much incentive for a strong deliberate um, response by NATO unless it becomes clear this is deliberate Russian action with some motivation that's not clear to us or Russia intends to follow up on it with similar actions in the future. So Ned, I think that helps Ukraine more than anything, is just helps reinforce NATO support, but doesn't really tip the conflict one way or the other. So moving from an area of increasing and potentially nuclear apocalyptic tensions to an area of maybe decreasing international tensions, we shall see. Um, so uh, President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping met for uh, over three hours earlier this week in sunny, beautiful Bali, Indonesia, which is a wonderful place, highly recommended the the Hindu temples are just fabulous, and the beaches are nice too. Um, they did this in advance of the uh, of the G twenty summit, and it's it was an interesting meeting. It was clearly intended to, I think, signal to both of the domestic audiences, to China and the United States, that both parties are trying to improve relations. There's a, a on the front page of one of the main Chinese newspapers. There's this big banner picture of Xi Jinping and Biden with their big politician grins, right? And obviously, what goes on a front page of a national Chinese newspaper is very much controlled by the Chinese government. And so if we're going to do some, uh, uh, you know, Chinese Kremlinology, uh, you know, we can read into that. And on the US side, Biden has indicated that he really wants to whether repair the relationship is possible, at least try to improve it. So he's told Secretary of State Blinken to kind of resume more bilateral talks with, with China. Um, it's not clear that they resolved anything in this three hours, which is not super surprising. The main issues at stake, which is Taiwan and you know the next three decades of global competition are not the sort of things that can be fixed in uh, a beachside conversation, even in lovely Bali. Um, but I think it is notable because of how explicit both sides want it to be, right? They're trying very, very hard to both signal the same thing. And so I want to start with you, Quinta, and ask, how much better are you feeling about the US-China relationship after this? I mean, I think certainly we can all agree that it's it'd be better if the two leading superpowers got along. And I'm, I'm curious whether you think that the presence of those two superpowers signaling that they want to get along really means anything about the underlying dynamics of whether or not these two behemoths can in fact get along. Yeah, I mean, I certainly I feel better today than I did before. Um, I mean, I suppose, right, it's it's sort of a, on the one hand, the proof is in the pudding. On the other hand, as you say, the fact that they sat down together and like a three hour conversation is a pretty long meeting, even allowing for translation. Um, Scott, you should correct me if I'm I'm wrong on that. But that seems quite substantial. I mean, the, the thing that I was wondering about going into this is that, you know, so this this meeting, Biden sort of went into it with a unexpectedly strong hand in terms of the domestic political situation for all of the reasons that we talked about, right? Like, I, I could have imagined, you know, he, he goes in there with kind of his tail between his legs, having really been whipped by the Republican Party in the, in the midterms. And I wonder, Scott, how much of a difference do you think that makes in this conversation? Does it affect it at all? It seems to me that it it must, and that if you're sort of a US president coming in victorious, your party's doing relatively well, you have uh, another perhaps four years on the horizon as opposed to coming in uh, with a Chinese thinking, you know, this guy's going to be gone in two years, we, we, we don't need to deal with him, we can worry about the next guy. What do you think? It's a really good question. And I think for a lot of international relationships, the midterm elections are potentially significant for that exact reason you noted, in that the Biden administration now has a better case to make 
to people that they're going to be around past two years, two more years from now, or you know, the Democratic Party more generally unified and chooses not to run, somebody with some kind of similar worldview and foreign policy, and that therefore there's a reason to take them a little more seriously. They outperform kind of electoral expectations. With China, I actually, ha- my gut instinct tells me it's actually a little less true for the simple reason that Republicans and Democrats are actually pretty united on China policy. There's a lot of differences about tack and approach and tone, particularly, and like framing. Like, you know, there's really different rhetoric around how the Trump administration, the Biden administration engage with China and oppose China. But the substantive policy is actually not that wildly different in ways that that really would like register, particularly to the Chinese government, I suspect. What I think it really matters here, though, is that this is a mutual moment by which both leaders can kind of ratchet back rhetoric a little bit without suffering major political costs. I think the Biden administration would have had a hard time looking like they're trying to engage in rapprochement with China before the midterm elections because they would be worrying about open up an issue that people in the Republican Party are going to try and beat them over the head with. Even though this was not a very foreign policy oriented election, you know, I, I think those sort of marginal issues hurt them in foreign policy in a lot of ways, was, I think, a strength of the Biden administration because of Ukraine and other issues. This particular election, they wouldn't want to upset that to the extent it does enter into the calculus. Um, And perhaps more importantly, I think probably more importantly for Xi Jinping, you know, up until the party Congress last month that we've talked about already on the podcast, you know, I think he was in a position where he didn't feel like he could really acknowledge the failure of any of his policies. And if you looked at that Congress, it was this celebration of him as this, you know, peerless visionary for Chinese policy that completely glosses over the fact that China's global reputation has plummeted since he's assumed leadership. The Belt and Road Initiative has become dramatically underfunded uh, and a little bit of an economic albatross to some extent. You know, you saw really, really unpopular COVID policies and lockdown policies in China that you've actually seen public reactions against. I mean, Xi Jinping has not been a flawless visionary leader for China, to say the least. But that's the narrative he's built up in part because at that party Congress, he was trying to assume this historical role. So in particular, I think in the party Congress, after the party Congress, in the lead up to it, Xi Jinping would have had a hard time walking back from the sort of hyper-aggressive, bellicose-leaning, bellicose rhetoric, particularly embracing wolf warrior model of diplomacy that he's embraced, where super, super vocal and aggressive in defending any sort of Chinese interests, um, very sort of hostile and lean forward, engaging all sorts of foreign governments about all sorts of issues. I think the idea was that that is a very clear tactic that he's embraced, in part for domestic as much as for international reasons. Internationally, it really has failed for him. But he couldn't really walk back from it before the party Congress. Now the party Congress has taken place. He's in power for another five years. He's reached this historical landmark. There's actually a number of signs that he's beginning to take steps to kind of repair certain international diplomacy outcomes of that of that approach. We saw him have a major meeting with German Chancellor uh, a few weeks ago, um, you know, host him in China. This is only his second uh, trip outside of China since the pandemic started. First trip outside of, I think the last one, only other one was to Uzbekistan, if I recall correctly. So this is a major engagement at this G20 meeting, meeting lots of people. We've seen a softer turn in a lot of Chinese rhetoric. And this kind of fits with this because, frankly, Xi Jinping is facing a lot of domestic challenges that he needs to challenge both around COVID, around the Chinese economy. And the United States is putting pressure on those in certain important ways, particularly around its export controls and sort of economic measures and can up that pressure more in ways that actually really hurt China. And meanwhile, you know, the United States is worried about China doing something erratic around Taiwan or in other parts of the region that could prove very costly for it, particularly when it's trying to focus on this war in Ukraine. And by the way, it'd be great if China could find a different approach to try and work towards peace in the Ukraine conflict. So all told, both of them have an incentive here to say, like, let's try and find more ways to reach towards outcomes that are not zero-sum game, because there are lots of them out there. And this is a political moment where they can both kind of embrace that without worrying about domestic political costs. And and I kind of suspect that's what made this the moment we see this easing off of the accelerator towards conflict. So so that seems very plausible, Scott. Though I guess I have to admit, I'm a little, I guess I'm a little confused about why we should assume that tacking to the center, which is like a very classic thing that we do in American politics, like why that would apply to what is just fundamentally not a democratic system, right? I mean, Xi Jinping was in no danger of not winning another five-year term or not staffing the standing committee of the the Politburo with handpicked loyalists. 
he 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 if he wanted to de-escalate, you know, if he thought that de-escalation was fundamentally the in the in China's strategic interest for whatever reason. I mean, he could have been doing this for years. I, I guess I'm just not sure I I see why he would have needed to ramp up before the party congress just to come down, right? I mean, he's not running in a primary. Like he doesn't have to to cater to his base in the same way. I mean, if anything, that's always been the much vaunted appeal of the Chinese system or generally of quote unquote well-run autocracies is that they can ignore their base. Um, and so I, I guess I, I'm not sure I disagree with you, Scott. I mean, we're seeing evidence of a moderation and I'll, I'll take what I can get. I guess I, I'm just, I'm having trouble making sense of that part of your story. You know, I, I'm not a China, I'm not a close China watcher, but the folks I've talked to about the party Congress and that we've talked to on the podcast, like they really made the point that like, this isn't an election, but this is still a community of people who are voting for the party that actually do have some influence. And Xi Jinping is very dominant here. His faction's extremely dominant, but there are other factions as well. Not all of them agree with him. Many of them were sidelined in these aggressive leadership choices, but that nonetheless had some sort of institutional mechanism putting them in place. So I'm not sure it's easy to say there are no politics in China. I don't think that's true. I think there are politics in China. I think there are, it's a black box of politics. We don't fully understand it. But insofar as we do know that there have been very different uh, approaches to Chinese foreign policy prior to Xi Jinping, um, you know, I think we can assume that those factions are still there. And even if they don't interrupt who he appoints as leader, maybe they don't have the votes to do that, they could have been a little less fawning in the rhetoric they supported for party documents. Or they could have refused to adopt a document, you know, putting him at equivalent, making him the equivalent of, you know, Deng Xiaoping and like major, major figures in Chinese history. And that was his goal. Remember, here he is not just getting five more years. He wants to establish himself as a, you know, one of the faces on the Chinese Mount Rushmore, right? Like one of the big guys in Chinese history. And that, I think required this air of infallibility. It's it's fascinating if you read these rhetorical statements that came out of this party congress and the lead up to it. Like they literally ascribed to him an air of infallibility. They've built a whole school of political thought around Xi Jinping and the things things he says, right? Which is I just gonna say they they need they need better names because it's literally called Xi Jinping thought. Like we get to get some better branding. I mean, it, it fits. It fits within a political tradition. I know, I know. I'm just, it's, it's, I, I want better branding. Well, after you get a hit like Wolf Warrior, you really raise expectations. So it's oh, hard Wolf to come Warrior's back. So to that good. One. It's so good. It's so good. Self parody, but so good. Yeah, but I mean, like, long story short, I, I still think there's something there for, to say that there's political moments of opportunity for Xi Jinping, and and now he has an opportunity to change tack in ways that's been very hard for him up until now. Or at least harder for him, if not very hard. Well, folks, that is all the time we have left for today. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over until we were back in your ears next week. Alan, what do you have for us in terms of object lessons? So my object lesson is uh, a book. It's just it's a classic rational security object lesson. It's Damascus Station by David McCloskey. So I I don't I have to assume. I'd be shocked if this was not an object lesson at the very end of Rational Security 1.0. Maybe it, it kind of like came out right between or something. Been. It might have been. You know, I don't care. I don't care. I'm plugging it again. It's unbelievably good. I mean, it is It is a just like straight down the line spy thriller about the Syrian civil war written by David McCloskey, who's a former uh, CIA analyst. It's just fabulous. I mean, I bought it actually on David Priest's recommendation. I bought it for my wife, Hannah, who likes spy novels, and she read it in like two days. And then I stayed up all night reading it, which I have to say, I have a 19-month-old and sleep is very precious. So it it takes a lot to get me to sacrifice actual night sleep. But it's fabulous. It's just so entertaining. Um, I'm shocked that it got through CAA pre-publication review. It's just there's like a lot of very detailed stuff in there. Um, and I recommend that in addition to reading the book, once you've read it, you should then go and listen to an episode of Chatter where um, uh, Shane Harris interviews David McCloskey. This was like a year and a half ago. Um, and it gets into the background of how kind of this the CA analyst turned author decided to write the spy novel. It's just, it's fabulous in just the best possible ways. So highly, highly recommend it. Excellent. I think it's being turned into a movie, right? Am I misremembering this? I think it, it is. It has to be. It has to be. At the very least, it's got to turn into a miniseries. I mean, it's got everything. It's got like, it's got like the the American CAA spy. It's got the Syrian, you know, woman who's like a Krav Maga master, but she's also working for Bashar al-Assad. It's got the crazy, you know, crazy spunky 
lady station chief. It's just, it's so good. It's just so good. It's basically like uh, the Bureau, like that that French spy novel, uh, sp- spy series, but less melancholic because it's American and it's not French. <laughs> Touche. Quinta, what do you have to share with us this week? Speaking of thrilling spy content, I, I also have an object lesson that I'm like 98%, 99.9% sure that we've already endorsed on this show, which is Andor, the Star Wars show. I feel like one of you endorsed it previously. I honestly can't remember. It's so good. It's so good. You you do your thing and then I'll do my thing about Andor. I was, so good. I was late to, to start watching it. I will say I, I loved Rogue One, so I was pretty stoked about this. Best of the new Star Wars movies, hands down. I oh, think. by far the best Star Wars movie. Well, I will fight for the Last Jedi, but we've done this before. Um, so <laughs> look, the the show it's incredible. I think it it is by far and away the best Star Wars related material I have ever seen by like a country mile. It starts really, really slow and then ramps up. And I think it is what is so good about it. There are many, many things, but it is incredibly attuned to the question of what makes under a fascist system what makes some people decide to work within the system for reasons of ideology or convenience and what makes people decide to push against it and is just like really really smart about dramatizing that in a way that is not didactic but really sort of lives within the characters and let you see that. And I think actually has like a, in this particular moment, has a genuinely radical political message. Uh, And they've carried it off with flying colors. So I am super impressed. I would highly recommend it. 11 out of 10 stars. Yeah, I, I gotta say, I cannot believe this is Star Wars content. I just, I cannot believe this is Star I don't know. It's like I Disney just no forgot idea. about it. I think they forgot about it. I don't know who let them make this. It's it's so good. It's like the it's like the first time Star Wars is actually science fiction rather than wizards with laser swords in space, which again is great. We're not, we're not, not going to do this not, again. We won't do this again. Yeah, no, it's, it's and the thing I love about it, and again, not to give anything away, I mean, I think, I'm curious your thoughts, Quinta. I think it's pretty obvious that the best character in his own sad way is uh is it's, it's Cyril right like the sad oh man the, I have thoughts the sad He's the Eichmann. Inspe- yeah yes exactly the the Eichmann of this and it's odd to say that Eichmann is your favorite character but you all should watch the, the show he's a problematic um, fave yeah he's a problematic fave uh it is it is fabulous you know we it's uh we actually subscribe to Disney for it and I gotta say I'm I've really we're sick of more streaming streaming services but we did it just for Andor well, I have not checked it out yet. I will check it out. The one thing I will say is I'm glad they're still committed to the incredibly lame and unappealing clothes that people wear in Star Wars movies and they're where they'd wear like no, little the hats costuming like they work is at a so Dairy good. Queen. All the Imperial outfits look so ridiculous. Okay. All right. A lot of the show is set on Coruscant. So you you really get the, the, a lot of like a surprising amount of the show is set in late Imperial or late Republic. I even get late Republic cocktail parties for lack of a better term. Uh, I don't know. They they knew how to dress well in a galaxy far, far away a long time ago. Do they finally give those Bothans that credit for stealing the plans to the second Death Star? <laughs> <laughs> We're the not there yet. Okay, my my one my one critique of the show is that there are not enough aliens. More aliens. There are not enough aliens. The, 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 here's the reason I think there are not enough aliens in the show is because aliens have always been fundamentally cartoonish Muppets in Star Wars. I mean, they literally are Muppets in the original. And, and because the show is trying to be like, Eichmann in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> it, like, it, I, I think that's part of the reason. Like, the aliens are just too goofy in Star Wars to ever have been super. Yes, super I will realistic. say there is a there is a ver- tweet that made me laugh for fully five minutes of someone suggesting that the Stellan Skarsgård character, who's like a tortured chess master, uh, should have been an Ewok. <laughs> also, I gotta say his his ability to go from tortured chess master to like just delightfully flamboyant art dealer just like on a dime is it's really very impressive just technically super impressive acting everybody should watch this it's everyone should watch this all right all right well we will check it out well well for my object lesson i'm not endorsing uh, a spy novel or anything else i will i will do the nonfiction round uh for us this particular round but well i'm going to do two object lessons i have a boring one and i have a more interesting a sad one uh boring one is that i have a new piece up in lawfare today people should check out uh, it is a piece i've wanted to write for years it is a absurdly long history of the 2002 iraq aumf which has had lots of weird twists and turns over its history many of which i have lived through 
Uh, and I finally decided to write it all down as we're talking about repealing it. Uh, and I make a little argument for repeal uh, in the course of doing so. It is a two-parter because it was too long to publish as one piece on Lawfare. Uh, so the second part will be out later this week. But check it out if you've at all been interested in, uh, you know, how we've been doing what we've been doing in Iraq for the last 20 years. I think it's a kind of interesting story as far as boring law and policy stories go. But the non-self-interested uh, uh, endorsement, an object lesson I will give this week, is that uh, an artist I really like passed away, unfortunately, and that is uh, Mimi Parker, who is the percussionist and vocalist, kind of backup vocalist for the man band Low, um, which is a husband and wife duo that's been playing kind of like lo-fi indie rock kind of stuff since the late 80s or early 90s. Really, I think really interesting stuff. They released two in really interesting albums the last two or three years that are like phenomenal and like rockier and like noisecapier in uh, crazy ways. And she, uh, but died passed away of cancer at a relatively young age, at 55, just uh, a week or two ago. Um, so I wanted to pass along a recommendation for one of their albums that I like that's very seasonally appropriate as it is past November 1st, meaning I have started listening to holiday music already. Um, and that is their EP Christmas self-titled that they have released uh, in, I think, the late 90s. Um, they are were a fairly religious uh, pair of Christian folks to some extent um, that kind of shine through in parts of their music at different times. They released this EP at, for fans that has a couple of kind of covers of Christmas and holiday songs and a couple of original ones that are really, I think, actually pretty profound and interesting and charming. Um, and so uh, I listen to it every year. I've started listening to it again. And this year it's particularly poignant um, knowing that she passed away recently. Um, so I strongly recommend people check it out as you ease your way into the holiday season. And with that, we have come to the end of yet another episode of Rational Security 2.0, which, like its forebear, is a production of Lawfare. So be sure to follow us on Twitter at RTL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes for our written work and the written work of the Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Jay Venables of Go Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quentin Allen, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we'll talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.